So glad, so glad that you're here tonight. It's a blessing to have each of you, and what an encouragement to see each of you come out again. I know these are busy days, and I know this is a very busy area, and I just appreciate so much you coming. Some of you have been battling traffic and getting here just barely, maybe having uh, not even enough time to stop at Wawa on your way, and so I'll be sure and get you out in time so you can stop at Wawa on your way out, but uh, you know, you, who needs Wawa when you've got coffee machines like this? I'm telling you, if I lived 45 minutes or an hour near this place, I'd join this church just for the coffee machines. I mean, wonderful, just so wonderful. But uh, what, what a great blessing. Thank you so much for being here. I, I want to mention there are several items that are on the table, some books, some tracks, and some music CDs that are there, as well as some things the boys have made. They made journals and different things that they use, and that helps us get to the mission field. And so pray for wisdom with that, that the Lord would give wisdom in all of it. We're just grateful that he's allowed us to travel and preach so many years and faithfully uh, stay at it and on the road. I want to mention tomorrow night, with the Lord's help, I'll be preaching a message on Bible prophecy. What does the Bible say about the end of the world? Back in 2012, uh, the world was supposed to come to the end on May 21st of 2012, and Mr. Harold Camping had made prophecies and made all kinds of declarations that uh, that was going to be the date, and people would ask me, they'd say, uh, <clears throat> they'd say, uh, what do you think? You think the world's going to end on, on May 21st? I said, well, it may end on May 21st maybe 20th, or maybe May 22nd, but it won't end on May 21st. And they'd say, well, how, how do you know? I said, because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. So anybody that says they know the day or the hour, this is what you need to do. You need to reach back in your back pocket and grab your wallet, put it in your front pocket, and keep your hand on it. That's what you need to do. Because they don't know what the Bible says, and they're out to get your money or something else. So stay away from somebody like that. And so May 21st came and went, and I guess what, the world didn't end. And uh, then... Uh, Mr. Camping said, well, you know, it, it, I, I actually, I miscalculated. No. And, and so uh, he, he said, it's sometime, I think, in October of that year. Well, October of 21 came and went, and it wasn't the end of the world. And so uh, that's what happens when you get away from the Bible. And so what, what does that do? It creates all kinds of sensationalism and all kinds of chatter ahead of time. And all kind, there, was people talk, there were people talking about it on the news. And, and, it talks, and then it causes people to discredit the word of God. Now, the truth of the matter is it wasn't based on the word of God in the first place. That's why the prophecy was made. But people that don't know that think, well, that's just all the word of God, and so it discredits that. So that's why we need to always come back to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say and let our convictions and our conclusions come from the Bible, not our own ideas. And so we're going to address some of these things tomorrow night. My, what crazy times we live in and what an a, what a awful time is going on in the Middle East right now. Just before church, I got a note that our flight on January, in January, is canceled uh, for, for I was going to Israel. And so th these things are all affecting us right now. Well, we're going to address some of them tomorrow night. I hope that you'll be here. And use that as a tool. Please use that as a tool to get anybody and everybody that you can under the sound of the word of God. That may be the very thing that will point someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad to have my uh, second son, Peter, here tonight. He just flew in. His flight was late, so he's barely here. And uh, we're, we're glad that he came and he's able to be here getting back from college. And uh, he'll be with us throughout the rest of the week spending his fall break with us. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7 in the word of God. 
2 Kings chapter 7. And as you're turning, I want to mention how important it is that we really make an effort the next couple of nights to really pray for these meetings. I know you've been praying, and about an hour and a half before the service, I've been praying, and I've been praying something like this. Lord, a lot of Christians in this church are praying, and you're hearing all of us right now, and I'm agreeing with my brothers and sisters, agreeing with them that God will use them to bring their loved ones and friends and neighbors and coworkers to church so that they might come to Christ, hear the gospel, and come to Christ. And Lord, help our need to be met. Only God, only God could meet all the different needs that are represented in this place. And so Lord, I'm praying that you will meet the need and I pray that you'd speak to my heart even as I preach. And, and I know that God is answering that. So let's especially keep that really at the forefront of our mind and thinking over the next couple of nights. And I know that God will use it. Let's pause and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for what you've done each night and the way that you've worked. I thank you, Lord, for each person that's here. And I ask that you would meet their needs spiritually. Help us to understand this truth in light of this passage. And Lord, I pray that everyone here that is saved, that you would encourage them. Lord, just infuse their heart with courage and strength in these very tumultuous times. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help those that are not saved to understand the gospel and be born again tonight. We ask all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. There are three times in the Bible when the phrase, the windows of heaven, is used and opened. And the Bible refers to it in the book of Genesis, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. It speaks about the windows of heaven. And it speaks about how God opened the windows of heaven and in judgment, poured out judgment upon a world that had turned its back against the Lord. Noah, his family, they were brought into the ark. They came into the ark. God brought all the animals into the ark, and then he shut the door. And when he shut the door to the ark, that was the last opportunity people had, and the door was closed. And then God opened the windows of heaven and poured out judgment. He opened the fountains of the deep. He poured out the rain, and judgment came down upon this world. The, the third time that the phrase the windows of heaven is mentioned is over in the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, uh, he pauses and he says, ye have robbed me. And they, the children of Israel say, wherein have we robbed thee? And he said, in tithes and offerings. He said, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough and to receive it. If you're here tonight and you haven't learned the importance and the Bible truth of the tithe, well, you're missing a blessing. God has promised great blessing. In fact, it's the only promise in the Bible. Bible that I know of where he says, prove me right with the promise. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord. Try me, test me, and prove me. See if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. He said, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse and see if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. You can try to outgive God, but you can never do it. Uh, you, can, uh, you can try to outgive God, but he'll always give back. That's his absolute promise and absolute promise, guarantee. And the tithe is just entry level. You understand? That's just entry level giving. We were at lunch today and I told pastor, I said, I, I, was, uh, I was a college 
sophomore before I had ever heard of faith promise giving. Uh, the churches that I went to in, in growing up I had never taught her, at least I had never learned it. And my dad taught me to give from the moment I got my very first uh, payment for working. I got a dollar seventy-eight or dollar eighty-three. I don't know what it was, and that was my very first. And boy, from that moment I started to tie. That's what dad taught, and I thought every Christian did, but I had never learned faith promise. And when I learned Faith Promise, it was off of a J. Oswalt Smith tape, how God taught a tape. Young people, do you know what a cassette tape is? Well, anyway, so it was a J. Oswalt Smith preaching message, and, and uh, boy, I got that message, and I, I heard it, and I, I started giving $10 a month. Oh, I was so excited God would give back to me, and, and I felt like I'd been robbed all these years. Uh, nobody had ever taught me about faith promise, and what a blessing, and what a glorious blessing that has been to me personally. And so you can't outgive the Lord, and it's silly to even try, really. I heard of a preacher down in Florida took his first church, and uh, he was meeting some of the people in their home. Sometimes they'd come into his church and his office and meet him, and one Monday morning, uh, man came in that was a part of the church that was kind of up in the community and just been elected sheriff. And he was pretty proud of all of his spiritual accomplishments and all of his political accomplishments. And he was telling the pastor all about it. And the pastor said, I, I, it was Monday morning and I was having a bad day. And he was going on and on about all the things he'd accomplished. And he said, it was getting on my nerves. And he said, finally, he got up to go. And when he got up to go, he said, now, now look, he said, pastor, I just want you to know he said, I'm not one of those Old Testament tithers. Now, the general rule is never mess with a preacher on Monday morning. That's just the general rule, and most everybody knows it. And so the pastor, when he heard him say, Pastor, I'm not one of those Old Testament tithers. The pastor swung his chair back and swung his feet up on the desk and said, glory to God, I've been waiting all my life to meet a New Testament giver. He said, now in the Old Testament, they only gave a tenth of all that they had. He said, but in the New Testament, they sold everything they had and laid it at the apostles' feet. He said, now, here are my feet. He said, I think it'd probably only take you two weeks to liquidate all your assets. He said, when you do, you can come and lay it right here at my feet. <laughs> Don't mess with a preacher on Monday morning. And the truth is, why would we quibble or argue about something that unlocks the window of heaven and invites the incredible amazing blessing of God. Uh, we're not talking about something that Jesse Duplantis came up with or some uh, Creflo Dollar came up with or some prosperity gospel came, preacher came up with. We're talking about something that God invented and it is in proper balance and it is in proper instruction right there in the word of God. The second time the phrase the windows of heaven is opened is right here in 2 Kings 7. And tonight, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on the subject, when we need the windows of heaven opened. Notice what our text says, verse 1. It says, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now, that may not mean much to you if you've read this for the very first time. But to those who had lived through 2 Kings 6, it was shocking. Notice verse 2. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, 
Might this thing be? And he, that is Elisha, said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. When we need the windows of heaven opened. I'm not talking first and foremost about physical blessing, although it may include that. I'm talking tonight about someone who may need the windows of heaven opened in your life spiritually. It may seem that in recent days the heavens have been brass and your prayers haven't gotten much higher than the ceiling and you can't seem to get a hold of God and when you open your Bible to read it, it seems like there's just something not right and you can't seem to get something from the Lord. It may be that God needs to intervene on your half uh, actually physically and, and there's some kind of physical trouble. It may be that God needs to open up something in your life financially, but I'm speaking spiritually here when we need the windows of heaven open. I want to divide our thoughts in three sections tonight, but begin please back at 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 24. Notice what the Bible says. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Syria is directly north of Israel. And now they come down into Israel and besiege Samaria, the city of Samaria. And it says, and there was a great famine in Samaria. Now, in our thoughts tonight, I want you to see first that there was an unbelievable situation. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there was an unbelievable situation. The scripture says that Ben-Hadad, who was constantly fighting against Israel, constantly coming against them, sometimes he was sober, sometimes he was drunk, but he was constantly coming against Israel. Now the Bible says he besieged Samaria. Now we know that there is an unbelievable situation for several reasons. First of all, I want you to see that the enemy had surrounded the city. A siege is one of the ancient tactics and strategies of warfare. And a siege is when they surround the city, no one is allowed to go out, no one is allowed to come in, no help can come from afar, and no message for help can go out. So the enemy has besieged the city. And do you know that has happened in city after city after city in our land? I grew up in, in Indiana for a while. When I was nine, we moved to Minnesota. And I grew up right downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then up into Coon Rapids in a suburb. And do you know that right downtown in Minneapolis was where the church that I attended was? It was Fourth Baptist Church, right downtown Minneapolis. And, and they eventually moved out of the city, went to a, a neighboring town uh, called Plymouth, and they left a witness in the city. But boy, that city has been ravaged by the devil. Do you know what they call Minneapolis now? Little Mogadishu. It's one of the only places in the country a few years ago that had an election that was not in English. It was all in Somalian. In the city, it was where the riots took place. They took place on Lake Street and then they moved up and took place on West Broadway. A friend of mine who is the pastor of the church that was left in the city, he and his wife were looking out the windows during the riot season of 2020. And as they were looking out the windows, they saw vigilantes on the corner 
men with guns, but they weren't officers, and they called 911 several times. And finally, the people at 911 said this. They said, we know who they are. They're not, they're, they're not the police, but they're not the bad guys. <laughs> they, they were on the floor or of, of their apartment and their house trying to make sure that they had protection. That's what the cities are now. I remember that man, that pastor, telling me 25 years ago, he said, if we do not reach the cities of our country, he said, pretty soon they're going to build a wall around them and let them self-destruct. And we're getting close to that. A preacher friend of mine during one of the elections said to me, after the election, church planning, inner city, anyone? Why? Because the enemy has surrounded the city. I was talking to Brother Devane today, and as we were talking, I said, you know, I said, every time I go to Minnesota, I get a burden. Because of what might have been, there were witnesses that could have made such a huge difference. Uh, When people were moving out into the suburbs and away from the trouble of the city, there was a friend of mine named Paul Taylor, and he was going into the city trying to have a bus route and trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went in saying, uh, people were moving out saying, it can't be done. He was going in saying, it must be done. And as he was going in, do you know what some of those people said? Oh, I found this out last year. And when I heard it, I had to get up and leave the room. I had to get up and leave the room. 25 years ago while he was going in. And by the way, he went in and the Lord provided a church building. Some man bought a church building and sold it to his church for a dollar. He bought a a camp and, and did everything that everybody said can't be done anymore. And he went in and went as a witness. Do you know what they told him? As he's moving into the city, trying to reach the people of the city, they said, these people in the city had their chance. Oh, I said, they said what? He said, they, they had their chance. How, how could any Christian anywhere say such a thing and, and at the same time not be witnessing? And so what happens when Christians move out? A vacuum takes place. Christians not just move out physically, it's not just that, but they move out spiritually and they no longer have a burden and they no longer witness. All of a sudden the devil moves in. And the enemy has besieged the city. Uh, We started tent meetings back in 2016, and we just sensed that the Lord wanted us to go, and so we went. We rented a tent. We went to St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul, Minnesota has 350,000 people in the city proper. Minneapolis has about the same, and there are about three, maybe three churches in the city of St. Paul, maybe two, and two Churches, I think, in the city of Minneapolis has been that way for 30 years. And, and the population of all those churches is maybe, maybe 400, all of the churches combined in the city. There's cities, churches, there's churches in the suburbs. So we went to St. Paul, and we set up a tent, and we were witnessing on the streets near the tent. And uh, wow, it was amazing what we found. Now notice what our text says. Please, let's go back to the text. It says, the enemy had surrounded the city, verse number 25, and there was a great famine in the land. That's the result of a siege, famine. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it. Now watch, there is a famine in the land. 
as a result of the enemy besieging the city and taking the hearts and minds of the city and the population centers of the country, then there's a famine. I was preaching in California in the early part of this year, and there was a, a man in a church in San Leandro, California, that said, Brother Dwight, my daughter is at, uh, is at a university down there in L.A., and, and she, doesn't know, she doesn't know where to go to church. It's, it's 45 minutes to go to the nearest church, and she's right there at Southern California, in, in LA, is there any church that you know of? I said, well, I'm familiar with some. I don't know of anybody right off. But I said, let me ask some of my f- friends in that area. And I called some of the friends, one of the men I was going to be with in a week or so. And he said, Dwight, it used to be you could point to several good churches all over California, but some of them no longer exist. He said, in LA, he said, I don't know of one church in the city of LA. There are three million people in the city of LA. How many people, how many years have to go by where people get up, they go to work, they come back home, they go to bed, they get up, go to work, come back home, go to bed, they go to a few amusements and pleasures, they, they live their life like they've always lived it without anyone telling them about Jesus Christ and being a witness in the city of L.A., in L.A. Whew. You know what there is? A famine in the land. And the prophet spoke of it. He said, there's a famine, not of bread nor of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. When I entered into evangelism 27 years ago or so, there I thought, how, how could a great country like America fall? I hear these preachers talk about it, but you drive down the highways and you you wonder, this is such a great land with so much wealth and prosperity. How could we fall? By ignorance. Ignorance of the word of God. Ignorance produces darkness. Darkness produces defiance. Defiance produces despair. And then what? Ladies and gentlemen, there is a famine in the land. We were knocking on doors and trying to invite people to our tent meeting in 2016. There was a young lady in a car waiting for a mom who was cleaning a house. And I gave her a gospel track. And I, I said, we're having a tent meeting about two blocks from here. And we would love for you to come. Her brothers were in the back. And I gave her a track and it, it said John 3.16. I said, here's a track that will tell you about John 3.16. And she just looked at me. I said, you've heard John 3.16, haven't you? She said, no. I said, you've heard of John 3.16, haven't you? She said, no. So I began to witness to her and give her the gospel. And after several moments, she had acknowledged her sin and called upon Jesus Christ to save her. But the ignorance, haven't heard of John 3.16? My wife is finding more and more in her children's meetings children that have never heard of John 3.16. Why? Because there's a famine. Notice our text. Verse number 25. It says, And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Watch, it was an unbelievable situation because the enemy had surrounded the city, because they were in a famine, because they were trading what was valuable for what was worthless. Now, I'm a hunter. Is there anybody here? I know this is a long shot, but is there anybody here besides Brother Brandon, Lawrence, and me that are hunters? Anybody that's a hunter? Oh, okay, good. Oh, Pastor, I didn't know that. Pastor and I have another common bond. Okay, good. Your wife's a hunter? 
Oh, you are. You hunted her. I got you. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. This is, this is his deer. Okay, good. Pastor, that's really corny. Okay. So, uh, so good. Now, when I hunt, I'm, I'm in for the meat. You know, I'm really in for the meat. And uh, I, I'm not really interested in the head unless it's got a big set of antlers on it. And, and even if, if it didn't have a big set of ha- antlers, I'm not really interested in the head. What kind of meat are you going to get from the head? I mean, from the body, you can get the back straps and the inner tender loin. You can get the shoulders and the hams. But what are you going to get from the head? I mean, you could get some jaw muscle. You can get some tongue. You can get some brain if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but what are you going to get from the head? They're trading 80 pieces of silver for a head, not of a deer or a cow, but a donkey. So they're killing their beast of burden, their workforce, so that they can eat. They're trading what was valuable for what was worthless. And they're trading it, notice verse number 25, a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. That's the stuff you scrape off your windshield just to eat. Trading what was valuable for what is worthless. Hey, listen, here's a young lady at this church who has a mom and dad who loves her and cares for her, and she grows up hearing the word of God, memorizing the word of God, and when she comes into her teenage years, she throws with caution to the wind all of the good wisdom and counsel and advice that her parents have given her and trades it in for the cheap advice of her peers that want to lead her away from God, and she follows down that path. What is she done. She's traded what is valuable for what is worthless. Here's a man in this place who has a good job and has the word of God preached regularly to him and has a wife that loves him and has children that love him and and want to follow in his in his path, and he decides he's going to kick out of the trenches and break his marriage vows and go down the road with, a, with another woman and, and break the heart of his wife. What has he done? He's traded what is valuable for what is worthless. Here, here, here's a, a lady in this church that hears the word of God preached and has a husband that loves her, and she decides instead of being an honorable, God-honoring lady and wife, she kicks out of the trenches and says, I'm going to be a career lady, and I'm going to follow the feminist agenda, and I'm going to live my life for myself. What has she done? She's traded what is valuable for what is worthless. And verse number 26 continues, as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my Lord, O king, and he said, if the Lord do not help thee, where, when shall I help thee? Out of the wine barn floor or out of the wine press? Watch, they were at the end of their resources. He's walking on the wall. Uh, if you've ever been to Europe, uh, we've been to Italy several times. Sometimes they will have the city wall, and it will be literally, in some places, as wide as this platform from the front to the back, baptistry. And, and he's walking on the wall, and sometimes it'll be 20, 30 feet tall, and he's walking, trying to solve the problem, and a lady calls down from the main part of the city, help my Lord, O King. He says, with what? I don't have anything to help you with. From the barn floor, it's empty. From the wine press, it's dry. Now, the last person you want to be uh, uh, without resource is the king. Because at least he can, he can hold soul and body together and make decisions that will benefit the nation. But he doesn't have any resources. Now, listen carefully. To realize you're at the end of your resources is not a bad place to be. As long as you look to the one who has unlimited resources. 
Here's a person in this place that has tried the works religion way and you realize you can't and you feel like you're one step forward and five steps backward and you can't please God and you can't satisfy the longing of your soul through works religion and you finally give up and say, I can't. I've tried to earn my own way to heaven and I can't. I can't do it. That's a good place to be as long as you look to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, you can save me. Please save me. And he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Here's a Christian that tries to live the Christian life and they realize it's an empty uh, attempt because in our own strength, we can't. In our flesh, we can't. And you come to the Lord and say, I've tried to be the husband you want me to be. And oh God, I've tried to be the dad you want me to be. And I realize my failure is more than my success. I can't do it. Will you help me? And you cry out to the one who has unlimited resources, get ready for victory because that's when the Lord steps in. But watch, if you don't, Look to the one that has unlimited resources. You'll find out in a moment it just leads to despair. Now look at our text, 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 28. And the king said unto, the, said unto her, what aileth thee? And she answered, this woman said unto me, give, me the, give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. Eat, thy, eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. Did you know this was in the Bible? Some of you said, I, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Well, there it is. Black and white. You said they're eating their own children? Uh-huh. Is there anybody here that's heard of Donner Pass? We've been out to Donner Pass, just along the, the Sierra Nevada Divide, just northeast a little bit of Sacramento, and we've been, we've been skiing there. The Donner family was there when it was cold and snowy, but they weren't there skiing. They were waiting too long, and they waited too late, and the snow came in and covered them up, and they were stranded there. They ate all the oxen, they ate all the donkeys, and they ate each other. It wasn't a bright day in American history. And this wasn't a bright day in Israeli history. They ate each other? What a problem. You say, yeah. Uh, they said, the moms got together and said, what are you having for supper? Well, I don't know, what are you having for supper? And they said, let's eat our kids. <laughs> that would bring new meaning when the kid comes home from the playground and said, mom, what's for supper? Anyway, uh, they, they, they eating their kids, and they ate the one kid on one day, and the lady said, all right, now, fess, fess up, give, cough up your kid, and she's hidden her. Now, I will tell you, when I first went into evangelism, the problems that were facing preachers at that moment were not even close to the complicated problems that are facing preachers today. And sometimes when preachers hear people come seeking counsel, trying to figure out how to put the pieces of their life back together, this is what the preacher does. He cries out to God in his heart and says, oh dear Lord, help me. I have no idea what to do. I need your wisdom. And that was the way this king felt. Why? Because watch this. They, were, they had exalted human appetite above life itself. Now I hate abortion. I'm against 
abortion. And I think every Christian ought to be. And it's repulsive to me to hear of Christians and preachers trying to go woke and be for abortion. I'm so thankful that it was sent back to the states. And I pray that someday it will be abolished altogether in America as slavery once was. But listen to me carefully. There is a root sin behind abortion. It's fornication and adultery. Now, I know it's not in every instance that that causes, but fornication and adultery and all of the other things that go along with it, that's primarily. You take away that, and you don't even have to worry about it. What has happened? For the last 50 years, people have exalted human appetite above life itself. Notice what the text says, verse number 30, it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Watch, they were at a place of despair. This enemy had surrounded the city. They were in a place of famine. They were trading what was valuable for what was worthless. They were at the end of their resources that exalted human appetite above life itself. And now they're in a place of despair because the king was not a godly man. And he was not looking to the Lord for his help. And when he tore his clothes, they looked and they saw from the ground, 15, 20, 30 feet up, they saw he had sackcloth on. In other words, when he went out for the walk, he did not then despair. He had already put sackcloth on. That was in a place of despair and an act of despair. Sackcloth was what they used to carry dirty vegetables, to carry trash or worse. And now he had it upon his flesh and it was notable in the scripture. Notice verse number, verse 31. Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat shall stand on him this day. But Elisha sat in his house and the elders sat with him and the king sent a man from before him but ere the messenger came to him he said to the elders see ye how this son of a murderer, this is Elisha speaking, hath, hath sent to take away mine head. Look when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him and while he yet talked with him Behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? So watch. If it wasn't enough that the enemy had surrounded the city, and it wasn't enough that famine had had resulted, and that they were trading what was valuable for what was worthless, and they were in a place of despair, and the end of their resources, and they had exalted human appetite above life itself, if that wasn't enough, what did they do? Blame the preacher. The whole problem is due to Elisha. He's the problem. He's the guy to blame. And you know, ultimately, the attack against the preacher and the attack against the Christian is not against the, it's just about the Christian. In fact, let me put your heart at ease. It's not about us at all. It's about the devil hating God. They're blaming God. Why should I? This evil is of the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's the one causing all this trouble. He's the one causing all this pain. Wow. Here you have it. It's as old as Nero burning down Rome and blaming the Christians. And it's happening even now. All the misinformation and disinformation and the finger pointing and accusation against God's people. They're to blame. They're the bad guys. They're the cause. They're the bane of our existence. They're the offscouring of the earth. And we get that all the time. Why? We're the ones that are to blame. Look here. You have all kinds of crazy problems in this world. And who blames, who blames the Christians? The enemies of God. Now, it is in this context that Elisha gives the word of the Lord. 
I want you to notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And, and, and now you can understand why it's so shocking. Elisha? In this context, with a siege and a famine going on, are you serious? But this wasn't Elisha preaching your best life now or the power of positive thinking. He was preaching, thus saith the Lord. And by the way, that's the place to go when trouble comes, to go to the word of God and to see what God has to say on the matter and to get the mind of God and to get the word of God on the matter. And this is when the Lord on whose hand a king leaned answered the man of God and said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. Now watch, we have a problem, <clears throat> an unbelievable situation. Is there a solution anywhere? Yes, there is an, not only an unbelievable situation, there's an unlikely solution. An unlikely solution. You said, preacher, what's the solution? All right, look at verse number three. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. It almost is like the person that is writing this doesn't even realize what's just happened. Of, there's four leprous men. What are they going to do about this? How are they going to help? What does this have to do with anything? Why would he bring up these four leprous men? There's four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? Do you know what I'm praying this week? I'm praying that some Christians will ask that very question. Why sit we here till we die? Why sit we here till we die? There is a task to accomplish and there is a problem to solve and though we can't solve the problem, our God can solve the problem and sitting here is not solving the problem. I wonder if there are some Christians at the Temple Baptist Church who are sitting on the sidelines watching but not in the arena. Why don't you get in the arena? I wonder if there's some Christians who are glad to give their critique as to what should be and shouldn't be, but are not willing to give their own sweat and toil. I wonder if there's some Christians who are glad to give uh, advice, but they're too busy to really get involved. Why don't you get involved, say, I'm going to surrender my all to you and consecrate myself to you and not just be on the outside looking in, but I'm going to have my sleeves rolled up and I'm going to have my shoulder to the work and I'm going to do what I can to make a difference for Jesus Christ in this town. He says, why sit we here until we die? Notice the next text. In verse 4, he says, if we say, this is them speaking, we will enter into the city. Now, let me just pause and say, for sake of the text, these leprous men weren't trying to solve the situation so they could get written in the sacred text. They weren't trying to solve the situation so they could make some kind of a splash spiritually. They were just trying to survive. And they said, if we say we will enter into the city, the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight. Now if I were you, I'd underline that phrase, first phrase of verse 5. They rose up in the twilight. Now watch this here. They said, if we go to the city, there's death. If we stay here, there's death. There's only one chance that we could live or die, kind of like the true or false question last night. A 50-50 chance we make it and a 50-50 chance we don't. Let's go there and fall into the Syrians. Maybe they'll show us mercy and maybe we'll live. And so they rose up in the twilight and they went to go into the camp, verse 5, of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part, that's the edge of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. 
Now, don't read verses 6 and 7, please, or you'll mess up my message. We'll come back. Verse number 7. It says, in verse number uh, 7, Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even as the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Verse 8. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then, said they one, then they said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. So who is it that God used to discover that God had sent the enemy to flight? Four leprous men. Four leprous men. Did they have degrees? I don't think so. I'm not undermining degrees, but that's not what God did. Did they have experience in, in, in this matter of, of, of spying out the enemy? Likely not. D- did, they, did they have some kind of background and some kind of resume where they were experts at this? No, no, God wasn't using experts. And God doesn't need experts now. Do you know who God uses? the weak things of the world to confound the wise, the things that are nothing to bring to naught the things that are, the foolish things to confound the mighty. That's who God uses. He uses the weak things. Ronald Reagan used to have a sign on his desk that said, you can be too big for God to use, but you can never be too small. God's looking for someone small enough to use. God's looking for someone that doesn't have all of that behind him or he's at least not depending on all of his accomplishments and all of his education and all of his intelligence and all of his experience and all of his advice. He's looking for someone that says, I I can't. I don't know how. These were four leprous men. When we went to Minnesota with our tent meeting, it was astounding what the Lord did. We rented a tent. I called the guy that was, had the tent company, Doug Latin, and I said, Doug, we, we need a tent that's going to seat about 250 to 300 people, and, uh, and we, need it, we need it for two weeks, and uh, we're going to have a week of prep and two weeks of preaching, and so can you give me an estimate? And uh, we need chairs, and we need lights. We've never done this before, so we don't know what we're doing. Anything you can offer to help us, we sure would appreciate it. He sent me back an estimate. He said, I'll give it to you for, uh, you for $1,200. It ended up being $1,800 because we rented a small tent for the kids' meeting, and we had it for two weeks. He said, Dwight, I would normally rent this price for one day of a wedding rental. He said, I'll do it for two weeks. I said, wow. God's doing something. We went calling it the Minnesota Mission. It ended up being the Minnesota Miracle because God provided. We had four different evangelists. We had five different independent Baptist churches working together to try to reach this area with the gospel. We passed out thousands of pieces of literature and we had people saved. And it was something that was, I guarantee you, hadn't been done in Minnesota for 30 or 40 years. And it was awesome what the Lord did. At the end of the meeting, I said to Doug, I said, have you ever thought about selling any of your tents? He said, well, I'll sell you this one. I, I said, well, how, how much? He said, well, he said, I paid 20000 for it in 2009. He said, I'm about to list it for uh, uh, 9500 online. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out an estimate. He sent me an estimate. He said, I'll sell it to you for $6,800 with a trailer to haul it. I said, let me pray about that. Yes. <laughs> 
And we had some money that came in extra over budget. And then we bought the tent. And then we went to Worcester, Massachusetts in 2017. We were only supposed to be in Worcester, Massachusetts for two weeks before Memorial Day. Preaching every night. And the Lord had worked it out and brought us in contact with a, a church and a pastor that was a past, a church that was started 130 years ago in part by D.L. Moody. The pastor said, we, have, we, have, uh, uh, we used to have in our church at the beginning 25 of the wealthiest people in Worcester. He said, now we have 25 of the poorest people in Worcester. And the whole demographic changed. We were only supposed to be there two weeks before Memorial Day. The Lord had us go five weeks of preaching, mostly under the tent. And God began to work in some incredible and amazing ways. The Lord's let us take the tent to Indianapolis and Newport News and all the way to Sacramento, California. In 2020, we had three tent meetings, three tent meetings scheduled. That was before we knew anything was going to happen. And, and then, then everything started to unravel. And we said, oh, I don't know how this is going to work. The first one was May 10th. It was supposed to be in Ohio. And we said, we don't, we don't know. Maybe, maybe we just need to reschedule it. And, and the pastor said, well, let's, let's, let's pray about that. We have a weekly prayer meeting. They said, at least let's go Facebook Live and YouTube. We said, okay. And they had made a religious exemption and all of that. And anyway, and so we said, Let's, let's just go for it. And so we had three weeks scheduled in Ohio that went six weeks. It was unbelievable what the Lord did in Ohio in 2020. And then we went to Iowa, and then we went to Sacramento County, California, three weeks before the election. It was unbelievable what the Lord did. And, and I'm simply saying this, that it would not have happened if we hadn't moved. Now, you know there's no way to change the future unless you're willing to disturb the present. And somebody somewhere needs to say, why sit we here until we die? There is something to be done in Dulles and Herndon and, and, and all the area of Ashburn and all the people. And I know it's easy for us to say, well, you know, this is a, a more affluent area and people are, are, are less conservative and they're not, but they're people and they need the gospel and they need someone to go and God's not looking for someone that's got the polish and the spit and the shine and everything perfect and everything in a row. He's just looking for someone to go. And they said, why sit we here until we die? We do not well. Then they went and they found ramen noodles on the plate and chicken in the pot and, and everything was left and the TV sets were hot. And, and what? And they looked around and they said, what, what's going on? And they went to the next tent and they found gold and silver and they go and they hide it and they get the food and they're eating it along the way, and then they said, we do not well. This is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. Are, are you listening to me, friends? This is a day of good tidings. You say, are you crazy? Have you been watching the news? Actually, no. And, and it's quite refreshing. And uh, you, you don't need all that. Now, I'm not saying you should be completely ignorant of it, but, but why do you need that? Does it help your blood pressure? Does it make you more spiritual? Now, again, you, you need to be aware, but you don't need to be obsessed. And, and you certainly shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't, certainly shouldn't let it consume you. Hey, you should be focused on the good news. This is a day of good tidings. You say, yeah, yeah, where? All right, number one, the gospel. 
That's otherwise known as the good news. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. This is a day of good tidings. Number two, God is working right now. Not way, way back 150 years ago. Right now, all across this country, he's working in miraculous and supernatural ways. It's a day of good tidings. Look, there are 15,000, they tell us, independent Baptist churches in our country. And do you know if in one-third of those churches. On Sunday, one person was saved. And that's not just possible, that's probable. Do you know what that means? 5,000 people were saved on Sunday. That's very likely. It's a day of good tidings. Hey, it's a day of good tidings. Jesus Christ is coming again. And instead of Christians being all down in the dumps and dragging their chin on the asphalt because of all the trouble and problems that are going on, we ought to be the most positive, the most the most upbeat, the most, the most optimistic, the most idealistic people on the planet. Not because we've read The Power of Positive Thinking, but we've read a book that has a higher authority and a greater promise than that. This is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. So watch what the Bible says in verse number 10. It says, so they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there, were, uh, there, were, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied and the tents as they were. And he called to the porters, and they told it to the king's house within, and the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, ah, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to the, us. They know that we be hungry, therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in the city. Behold, I say, they're even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. And let us send and see. They took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them unto Jordan. And lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste and the messengers returned and told the king. And who did God use to turn the tables? Four leprous men. When we first started these tent meetings, we had four different evangelists and I said, guys, we're gonna have a quartet sing every night. And they said, really? They said, that's great. Who? I said, us. I said, I think we're going to call ourselves the victory heirs. We call these tent meetings the victory gospel crusade. I said, we're going to call ourselves the victory heirs. Doesn't that have a ring to it? Maybe we get a bus and get that printed on the side. It just has such a ring to it. But you know, by the end of the meeting, after seeing what the Lord did, I said, you know, maybe we should just change our name to the four lepers and beggars who found bread. Because that's all we are, is a beggar who's found bread. And we're pointing other beggars to the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was an unlikely solution. And you know, I would venture a guess I'm looking at some unlikely solutions here tonight. We're saying, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know how to approach my boss. I, I don't know what to say to somebody that's in a place, that's, that, that's in a place financially better than I. I. I don't know what to say to my neighbor. Just, just start. Just start out and say, Lord, you guide me as I go and help me to witness. And you know the Lord will amazingly show up in your behalf. Watch now. There was an unlikely solution. And I want you to notice there was an undeniable salvation. Look at what happened. Go back to verses 6 and 7. It says in verse number 6, it says that they, the Lord made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses. 
even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight. Hey, 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 did you underline that in verse 5? That the lepers, they rose up in the twilight? When did the Lord send the enemy to flight? In the twilight. That is so like the Lord. Look here. Right when they move towards the solution, God moves the enemy. Right when Abraham is going up one side of the mountain and Isaac, God's bringing a ram up the other side of the the, the mountain to to, to answer his prayer. You see, God moves on our behalf when we move towards him, when we move in faith. That's what God's looking for. Some of you may be called to full-time service and full-time ministry, and you say, well, I I don't don't know how it's all going to work out. If you're waiting for it to work out on paper, you'll never do it. It'll never happen. But if you say, Lord, I don't understand how it's going to happen, and I don't have to, but I'm trusting you, and I know that you're leading, and you move, God will move on your behalf. It's the way he works over and over again. He brought the solution when they moved in faith. And he, did you know what he did? I know it seems like an unbelievable situation now in our country and around the world. Do you know what God can do to turn the tables against the enemy? What he did here? You know what he did here? This is all he did. Are you ready? This is really deep theology here. This is all he did. Boo! That's it. And the enemy heard a noise and they said, the Egyptians, the other enemies, they've hired, they've got a whole axis and allies against us. Let's get out of here. That's all the Lord did. What a God. And look what happens in this unbelievable solution, undeniable salvation. Look what happens in verse number, uh, verse number 18, 17. Notice what it says, no, verse 16, the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians, so a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Oh, think of that, God's word is true. God's promises are yea and amen. God's word does come to pass. You can trust it, verse 17, and the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate, and the people trod upon him in the gate. And he died, as the man of God had said, when, who, who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel, shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. I want to ask you just a question or two. Who are you? Who are you right now? Are you the king living in despair, walking around realizing you don't have anything but not turning to God for help, blaming the preacher, blaming the Christians, ultimately blaming God for the problem? Who are you, the Lord or master or or, or counselor to the king, who when the man of God speaks the word of God, you say, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Are you the man of God that's so in tune to the word of God that that's what you speak and you speak it clearly? Or are you the four lepers who are saying, why sit we here till we die? That's not an option. This is not an option. We don't know if that's an option, but we're going to move in that direction and watch the Lord work. I bet those lepers had a time watching those people run out the gate and find the spoil 
I bet they had a time seeing God provide for his people and turn the enemies to flight. Just one step of faith. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I've preached the burden of my heart tonight and I ask that you'd help us. Help us, I pray. Help us not to come casually or capriciously to this text of Scripture if we've heard it before and say, well, we've heard that before. Help us to seek you. I wonder with heads bowed and eyes closed if you'd say, preacher, I have been living in doubt and unbelief in the midst of my unbelievable situation in despair like the king because my eyes have been on the limited resources I have or on my own terrible situation. And I need the Lord to open the windows of heaven and I want to respond to him by faith like these lepers did. Would you pray for me that I would move from being the the doubter, the counselor to the king, to being the simple believer that moves in the direction of hope like these lepers? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Good. Who else? A preacher? I am in the midst of an unbelievable situation and I need God's windows to be open on my behalf. Would you pray that they would and that I would respond in faith? Who else? Slip up your hand. Anyone else? Good, good. Anyone else? Man or woman? Question number two. How many of you would say, Brother Smith, I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. If I died tonight, I know that I'd go to heaven. There's been a point in time when I can say there, then, that was when I was born again. If you can't, don't raise your hand. But if you can, would you slip your hand up high? Yes, I know that I'm saved and I've been born again. Slip your hand up high as a testimony to that fact. God bless you. You can put your hands down. Is there anyone here tonight that would say, Preacher, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I need to be and I want to be. Would you pray for me? Yes. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Say, preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I need to be, and I want to be. Thank you. Is there someone else? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know that if I died today, I'd go to heaven, but I need to be, and I want to be. Anyone else? Slip up your hand. Put it right back down. Anyone else? All right, if you just raised your hand and said, preacher, please pray for me, I just want to speak to you personally. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And as soon as we get done praying, we begin to sing. I want to encourage you to come. Take pastor by the hand. Say, pastor, I need to be saved. We're not asking you to say something publicly. We just want you to know in your soul when you put your head on your pillow tonight that your heaven is home and your sins are forgiven. You can know that. And that's why God brought you here tonight, so that you would know that. But you've got to make the choice to come to Jesus. And when you do, he'll save you. I want to urge you to come and get this matter settled tonight. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Please, everyone standing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it. Now, Lord, help us to obey it. And help us not to kind of obey it or, or, or jab at it. Help us to fully consecrate ourselves to obeying your word. Help us to move from being the doubter in the king's court to the four leprous men that just moved by faith trying to solve the problem with the help of the Lord. And I pray that we would have your help tonight in our lives and in our situation. We ask it in Jesus' name.